Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Ellen and Overy podcast series. Today we will be discussing a very hot topic, and this is ESG. I am joined by Tamara Sizeka, a counsel in our uh, London team and an ESG expert. Hello. As well as by Benjamin Lacour, a senior associate in our investment funds team in our Paris office. Hi, nice to join. And of course, uh, I am Kodrina Konstantinescu. I am a counsel in the investment funds team in ANO Luxembourg office. But first of all, I think uh, Tamara will give us a couple of numbers. <laughs> in numbers, numbers, numbers. Um, so let's let's maybe start with um, the big one, which is the EU has memorably said it wants to become the first net zero continent. And to achieve that uh, is going to require vast amounts of money, um, not all of which can come from the public purse. So uh, the EU is estimating, I think, around 290 billion euros per year extra money has to be found to achieve their their green targets. Um, others globally have come up with, I think, eye-watering numbers. I think the IMF estimates 10 trillion US dollars. And that's, I think we'll all agree, a, a vast amount of money. But the good news is that um, ESG, not just popular in the funds management industry amongst people like us, also, the ordinary person on the street is incredibly interested and motivated. Retail investors are focusing on it. And um, this is what I think we, we think of now. The market is actually ahead of regulation and ahead of regulators in relation to, to ESG, which is, I think, a, a bit of a first even. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara. Those are excellent news and excellent figures, <laughs> I think, for ESG. Um, so probably the first question is how are the asset managers reacting to those figures uh, in EU and uh, more particularly in the UK and uh, in France? Well, I think that the, the, the first thing is that, as, as you said, it's not only a push from the regulators and there's a, a great wish from investors. And by, by investors, I mean both big institutional investors which require now ESG to be implemented in the strategy of the funds, but also from the retail investor who is investing for the first time in a fund, who, who has never invested in a fund in his life, and now is ready to, to, to just invest in a fund. But for him now, for, for, for that retail person, it's important that the fund really considers ESG. And I think also one of the main things of, of all these regulations is to ensure that there's no greenwashings, to, to have the same playing field for everyone. And the asset managers of the last two years have done a tremendous job of getting up to speed for, for those who did not yet include the ESG as a, as, as a main criteria for the investments. Greenwashing, my God, I'm almost bored, sick of hearing this phrase, but it is on, uh, like ESG, like on everyone's lips. There was this amazing report published only a couple of months ago, I think called the Golden Age of Greenwashing, where um, I think a, a Swiss agency was hired by Greenpeace to consider uh, a random sample of, uh, of fund documents. And I think some staggeringly high number were found uh, were found wanting. So this phrase, the golden age of greenwashing, uh, not so flattering. So yeah, regulators, I think, are really, really focused on this. And partly they are focused on it because they're concerned about it, um, a scandal emerging that might dent the credibility of this nascent industry. All this great uh, enthusiasm 
for for certain types of words and phrases that we see all the time now in in fun titles or in fun documentation, the credibility of all of that will be damaged if there's a big scandal. So they are very, very much motivated on, on, on the greenwashing, as maybe they should be. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that most of the um, asset managers are looking for uh, an Article 8 or 9 classification under SFDR. I think that's right. Um, I was speaking to to one of the largest EU uh, fund and asset managers only last week, and they said that currently 85% of their entire fund range in the EU falls within Article 8 or Article 9. And they are hoping to increase that number even further over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. I think across all of the EU, I would say maybe 4 to 8% is Article 9. And that's really been the struggle is, is some of the very, very onerous elements of Article 9, like the, the do no significant harm element, has been very difficult for firms to comply with. Plus, um, the fact that data is not always available or sufficient and reliable data which I think means that sometimes they can feel perhaps slightly more risk than they're comfortable taking in committing that something will definitely be Article be Article 9. But Benjamin, what, what are your views? Well, it's true that in France, we, we've had a long time. I mean, we've been working on ESG because the, the French regulator has been pushing the subject. And the, and the market, the market the in market France is, is yeah. probably head of uh, Yeah, absolutely. Others. And clearly, we, we have the feeling that some provisions of SFDR well, we can just see the affiliation with the French regulations. I mean, we, we, they are reporting there, which the French asset managers have been doing for years, more at the level of the management company rather than at the level of the fund. But there are things there which, which was easy for them to, to implement. Uh, then I think we've seen a trend because we, we have a lot of players on the French market which are very involved on ESG and therefore clearly on been working on that of, over the last two to three years and all their funds were article eight or nine on March 2021. Then we've seen also other asset managers being a little more cautious, as you said, because they anticipate the level of data. The data is not always available, so they're not certain that they're going to be able to gather everything uh, from the portfolio companies. It's also different with respect to the asset class, I think, because when we are in equity, Real estate, it's easy. You are very close to the assets, so it's easy for, for them to, to gather the data. When we are talking about debt strategies, I think it's been a little harder for them. I think now we, we have templates being worked out and it's easier for them to, to gather the data. But I think uh, unless you were financing uh, photovoltaic fields, it was a little harder for that at the beginning to, to gather everything. I think that's a really, really good point. I think um, if we broke up the entire industry into different market segments or, or asset classes, I think it is definitely the case that some are further ahead than others. I think the other point to make is what we were talking about earlier about it being client-led demand, and that is focused a lot on distributors. So we hear anecdotally a lot of distributors saying, we can't sell Article 6 anymore, so <laughs> don't bother giving us anything. So this also, I think, is in giving an extra impetus to, to more and more, which is, should be a dream for the regulators. They want more um, assets to go into these categories, but um, it also has maybe highlighted one of the weaknesses of SFDR, which was a lack of clarity as regards the Article 8 category and my understanding from the ESMA roadmap uh, published a few weeks ago is that that's one of the uh, actions for, for ESMA and for the other ESAs 
is actually thinking about what's the minimum level and maybe also breaking up Article 8 into subsets, which I think has also happened in the German market yeah. through their own local initiatives. That could be really useful, exactly, because this is exactly what we are hearing from uh, clients that are not yet able to do a taxonomy alignment. And they are saying, okay, we are still an Article 8, for instance, that promotes an S factor, and therefore uh, we should keep our qualification as an Article 8 SFDR while waiting, obviously, for the for the social taxonomy. Just another question, maybe on my side. Um, if most of the funds manager are going for Article 8 or 9 funds, it means also that the cost might increase because there is, of course, uh, increased reporting uh, that is due to the investors and increased data search. Yeah, I think you have interesting data <laughs> Yes, well, so I asked a client who, who just said to me, well, of course, they're all, in fact, it was on the new sustainability preferences regime. Um, and uh, this is, is heavily, I guess, more relevant to retail, but, but equally institutional. And so the issue came up, you know, more service, more fee. And in fact, I sent them away to to go and gather industry data and, and not just tell me what they think the answer should be, but actually what the answer really is. And the answer is, in fact, that there's no evidence so far that suggests across the board that um, an ESG strategy or considering ESG risk or um, e even impact investing, it, it is not necessarily going to be more expensive or less expensive. The figures are uh, sort of pretty open. And I, I think also um, someone anecdotally told me in a, another conference that a uh, very, very big institutional investor, and a couple of years ago, they had 48, would you believe, uh, asset managers working for them. And they said to all of them, you have to start integrating ESG and doing the engagement and so on. And uh, 47 of the managers readily agreed and, and, uh, and made, that, made those changes with no fee change. One US fund manager declined to proceed and was replaced within a year by another firm at the same cost. So I think anecdotally, we would say um, no increase, no higher fee so far yet visible, but the jury is out. So let's see what we will say in another year. Yeah. What we've seen on the French market, maybe for smaller players, small asset management companies, we have a lot of those in France, um, asset management companies with just one product line, one fund, uh, 10 people working in a management company. And what we've seen, we have a lot of uh, outsourcing to firms which gather the data for them and, and prepare the reports. And being a little more technical, we have not seen an increase in the management fees, but we've seen a lot of firms where clearly the costs related to, the, to just the drafting of those reports, all the third-party services providers are expenses of the fund. So it's yeah, something we've exactly. seen a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So investors are taking them over. Yeah, and um, in light of this, what is the position of the of the regulators on the French and the UK market? Because I think, well, in Luxembourg, uh, the regulator has a uh, proactive approach. Uh, the CSSF last year published an uh, FAQ that uh, encourages all the Luxembourg-based um, alternative investment fund managers uh, that uh, operate or not Luxembourg funds to uh, start uh, already pre-completing, at least on a best effort basis, the draft RTS published in October 2021. So they have a very proactive approach and they are uh, most probably trying to avoid any delays in the application of RTS uh, as of 1st of January 2023. Uh, is it the same in France and in the UK or 
I think trends uh, has also been yeah. quite proactive yeah. and I think they are also at the source of all these initiatives and they are very involved. I mean, they hired staff to, 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 to follow these issues on the uh, European level. I think with respect to the RTS, the MF indicated two weeks ago at a conference that, yeah, we, we need to use those templates if possible and as of now and also indicated that apparently it's going to be the position of the uh, ESAs in the, in the next paper that we should include them now, even if they are not yet fully, uh, fully entered into force. Clearly, the MF, it's a, it's a big issue for them. They're pushing for Article 8, they're pushing for Article 9. They're, they're very easily considering that if you consider ESG criteria in the management, you are an Article 8, you may be difficult to opt out. So it's discussions that are still ongoing. I think it, it reflects with what you said on Article 8, because that was the issue when SFDR and turning to forces, what, how do we determine in which category we, we fall in? And, and it's something on which, unfortunately, until now, we still do not have a lot of clarity. I'd like to also, this might be controversial, but I'd like to say I think it is a good thing that we're not going to have this big bang where all of a sudden everybody must start using the RTS on one particular day. I think it is good actually for know-how and expertise to be more slowly uh, developed. We all get a little bit of practice when it's not legally required. People are able to scale up a bit. I think actually this sort of soft launch may in fact be a really helpful thing for the industry. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Paris, we've been advising clients since March 2021 to use the RTS. So we've been... Yeah, the, even uh, the previous ones. Even the previous yeah, one, yeah. 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 In, mm -hmm. in a way of, well, we do not really know. So do the best efforts you, you, you can you to can. just comply with what's available right now. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, we did We did the same. And uh, we had a discussion also at uh, industry level in Luxembourg saying that uh, most probably those RTS from October 2021 will not change. So uh, this will be the position that will that will uh, that will remain until uh, at least first of January 2023, and then we will see. Uh, I know that we have a couple of clients who are looking to uh, make the RTS presentation a bit more commercial and to make sure that investors, even institutional ones, are uh, able to receive data in a, a quite clear and uh, and effective manner. So some of them are uh, looking to to make a progress, I would say, to mm -hmm. the to the current RTS while covering the main subjects. But, with respect uh, to design. Yes, <laughs> more more in respect to design. Correct. Um, exactly. But one of the biggest points that I make, I'm on a working group, an EU working group, looking at at some of these issues with some some asset managers and and uh, private banks. And um, the, one of the biggest points I make is that whatever your IT system is, the system that you develop, you should develop it with as much flexibility as possible because, firstly, regulatory requirements are likely to evolve. There's already a suggestion from the ESAs and from ESMA that they will look pretty quickly at what's working and what's not working. So your IT systems can't be too hardwired, too inflexible. Um, and secondly, the best practice standards are going to evolve. So you should be ensuring that whatever you develop for day one can be readily changed if necessary on day 200 or day 365. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I think, yeah, I, I, I would like to know what are your thoughts on the benefits of uh, of SFDR and, and taxonomy. I think we, we are quite lucky to work uh, in this area, uh, well, to work together already in this area. That's already a very, a very positive thing because SFDR and taxonomy uh, are for sure advances for our, our industry, right? I mean, a few years ago, we were not thinking about this and now everyone is focused on this subject, which already shows that uh, the, the advances and the, the 
progress is there. So from my point of view, there are a lot of advances and a lot of benefits coming from the regulation. Uh, do you think the same? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, it's, it's always the same with uh, EU regulations. I mean, it, we, we, are, we are leveling the playing field. Everyone needs to provide the same info on the same template. So clearly the, for, for the ultimate investor, he'll have all the information he requires to, to, to make an investment duly informed. The, the, the only challenge I see with that is the way how regulators are going to interpret that. Because we've seen in the past on other European regulations, for instance, MIFID, that we all never had the same view. I mean, Tamara, the UK was known <laughs> to, to have certain views on MIFID, which True, were exactly. not shared by yes. the other regulators. Uh, but they were detailed at least. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> sorry again about Brexit. Sorry. <laughs> but but yeah, so in the end we, we just the main biggest challenge for us is to be sure that well everyone is going to have the same view and that we are not going to have uh, differences in interpretation from a regulator to another. Speaking uh, from a country where the regulator clearly wants to ensure no greenwashing, wants to ensure the, the good information of the, of the clients. High quality standards. Yeah. So I would probably say three things in terms of the benefits of all of this. The first, I think, is that a study maybe done last year or the year before found that um, particularly amongst millennials, but across the general retail investing public, um, maybe 86 or so percent would sacrifice some investment return for investments that uh, avoid harm to either social or environmental factors. And I think that really reflects what a lot of us see in the press. Nowadays, there's a sense of values and a sense of environmental issues being really fundamental to our lives as, as individuals as well as in, in our sector. So the focus in the industry on, on ESG, I think, is a way of um, both meeting this demand, but really interestingly attracting millennials, the, the investments of millennials into the industry, and that opens up a lot of commercial opportunities. So, so that will be for me number one. Number two is sort of similar point, but broader. The EU is, I think, really keen to try and get more retail money into the capital markets. And the data I saw a couple of years ago is that we have in the EU about 411 million people. Average age is 42. Investable assets is about 33 trillion euros. Now, the more money that could flow towards that, maybe capitalizing again on ESG being a way to attract new investors, new investments. Again, that's actually really, really good for the EU and, and for the EU economy. So that will be my point number two. The point number three is a little bit personal, but um, I have never, ever spoken about MIFID two and seen somebody sit up straight. I've never seen anyone's eyes light up with joy where I mentioned the word EMEA. Um, and I have for sure seen at least two people who will remain nameless fall asleep when I start talking about PRIPs. When you talk about climate change issues and when you talk about ESG, people are genuinely interested. When I'm in rooms on in, in industry committees or in working groups, everybody wants these regulatory initiatives to succeed. And that's at a personal level for your families, for your friends. Uh, you want climate change to be solved. You want biodiversity issues to be solved. And this, I think, is a really nice thing as a person who's been in regulation for a long time. I've never felt that about any area. And I think a lot of us, both within the legal fraternity, or you could be an in-house lawyer, or you could be in ops or in IT or whatever, something like this that has this feel-good factor, I think, is, is really, really nice. And it's very empowering. So I, I would say that's, for me, the third benefit. 
I fully agree. I fully agree with you, Tamara. Um, yeah, I think we, we will end on this uh, positive note, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, and sure. um, we all know that there are challenges to come, but uh, let's uh, stay tuned and let's remain positive. Uh, everything will be uh, very good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.